Welcome to Timberline Windsor. Thanks for joining us this weekend. We are a church family that strives to let love live in every facet of our lives. We at Timberline Windsor desire everyone, every man, woman, and child that calls this church family home to be a part of Connections. To join one today, visit our website or download the Timberline app. Enjoy today's message. There's a uh, question that, that I've always kind of thought is kind of an unanswerable question. It's for couples that are expecting, pregnant couples, and the question goes something like this. So are you ready for this next season of life? I think it's kind of an unanswerable question because is if you say yes, then what's about to follow is like, oh, you have no idea what you're in store for. No, no, this next season is just so much, you got so much going on. No, you, you don't know what's coming next. And if you say no, then what follows is, well, you better be. The baby's coming one way or another. Come on. It's an unanswerable question. It's more appropriately kind of like the correct answer, whatever that may be, still needs more. I want you to hold on to that thought for just a second. Last week, we began a new act of the Mark gospel. As that poster in the Great Hall, I think we'll actually have it on the screens as well. As this, as this shows, starting last week, we're in this center section here, act two, on the way. In, in chapters eight through 10, where Jesus is really honing in on the question, who am I? What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? A little less than a year ago, um, my sweet niece, Maisie, um, she had this, this really cute thing that we had at, at Christmas time. Everybody was kind of celebrating Christmas and all the great things that we have to celebrate during Christmas time and, and reflecting on that. And, and it got to the point where Maisie, with this confused look on her face, just throws up her arms and goes, well, what does Christmas mean? <laughs> it was the cutest thing. I love that. What does Christmas mean? That's kind of where we're at in the Gospel of Mark. What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? We're going to continue the story. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. If you have your Bibles or Bible apps, go ahead and open up to that. Um, as you're doing that, I'll kind of set the stage. Jesus has just cleared the schedule. He has healed the man, the blind man, in an intricate, purposeful, personal way. And then he's, he's sent him back. Don't even go back to the village. Don't go back to your friends. I don't want the crowds around me and my friends, my disciples right now. He's, he's clearing the schedule. The disciples are all his. Verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, Mark makes a special note here that this conversation, this critical question is asked of the disciples on the way. Because faith happens on the way, in the journey, as they're en route. Your most spiritual, most Critical aspect of faith that you're dealing with this week may not be this time together 
in weekend services. This is important. This is critical, what we get to do to worship together and and hear from the word and, and engage in the word together and serve one another. But God's greatest movement of faith in your life might be when you're on the way, in your commute, as you're browsing social media, as you're figuring out to do or what to do with the rest of your week. Because faith happens on the way. Faith happens on the way. Let's, let's keep journeying. Jesus had asked them, who do people say that I am? This is their answer. And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? This is the question of Mark. And because that sounds too much like the question, Mark, I'm going to rephrase it a bit. This is the Mark question. Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? It's been asked once before. The disciples were actually the ones asking it in the boat after he had calmed the storm. Chapter 4, verse 41. And they were left speechless from the result of that question. But here they have an answer. How'd they do? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. In their previous uh, encounters, when when they had summarized what, what the crowds had been saying about who Jesus is, where they said John the Baptist and, and Elijah and one of the prophets, it's interesting that apparently no one had said, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. And that, by the way, Christ, Messiah is just two different names for the same meaning. It's not Jesus's last name, like Jesus Christ. It's Jesus the Christ. Jesus, that's his title, his role, his mission. Jesus the Christ. But it's weird that none of the crowds had actually attributed that title to Jesus because even demons had recognized who Jesus is as the Christ and had publicly shared that. Chapter 1, verse 24. Chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 5, verse 7. The demons are proclaiming, proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. So for the crowds to miss it, it makes Peter's confession all that more dramatic. You are the Christ. Peter got it. Peter got the correct answer. Yay, Peter. This is a big deal. If you don't know Peter, if you haven't really encountered him, he's kind of a guy that tends to stumble through this whole discipleship thing. So for him to get the answer correct, we got to throw like a Peter party. This is awesome. Good job. But, you knew there was going to be a but, right? But, Peter's correct answer still needs more. It's kind of like that unanswerable question for the pregnant couple that I was talking about at the very beginning. The correct answer still needs more. It's the right answer in terminology. It's the right answer in title. But in sweet Maisie's words, What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? 
Yes, he's the Christ, the Meshiach, the long-awaited divinely anointed one. The Jewish people had waited generations upon generations, promised this figure that would come and establish the perfect reign of God over people, that they would dwell securely. You have 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, announcing him as a son of Yahweh. Psalm 2, 7 through 8, celebrated him as a son to whom God entrusts the inheritance of all the nations. And then Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, I want us to actually see this one on the screens. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Quite the calling, quite the task. And nobody has lived up to it to this point, but they are awaiting one that will perfectly and securely usher in God's reign. All these promises culminating in the one that they called the anointed one, the Meshiach, the Messiah, the Christ. And Peter's right. Jesus is that guy. But it's what he's envisioning that shows us there's a problem. Sometimes a picture illustrates uh, way better than, than words can. I love that about the art. So let's, let's zoom in a little bit on that conversation. This is that whole Bible project poster kind of zoomed in on this critical conversation. And you start right here with Jesus. Who do you say that I am? And Peter's answer, you're the Messiah. Good, right answer. But now check out the thought bubbles. What is Peter thinking that means? And what is Jesus thinking that means? What Peter and the disciples envisioned as Jesus, as the Christ, and what the crowds have been developing is liberate us from Rome. You're our savior. Being the son of God, the inheritor of the nations, that means you're throwing off the oppression of Rome. This, by the way, is why we see what John accounts for in John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, when the people come around Jesus and they believe in who he is so much that this is what they do. John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, the people say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew. The Messiah is a liberator. Are they right? Kind of find yourself stuck in that, uh-oh, <laughs> what's the correct answer here? Kind of like that expecting couple, right? What's the correct answer? Jesus, the Messiah, is a liberator. Are they right? Yeah. Is it a trick question? It's not a trick question. It's just that the correct answer needs more. See, Peter's answer is correct, but still needs much more in grasping in what that means. But here's what Jesus knows. Here's where Jesus' thought bubbles go to. It's Isaiah 
chapter 53. This is kind of like a life chapter for what Jesus is envisioning the Messiah's role is. And this, by the way, is written in prophecy. What that means is it's written centuries before Jesus would actually fulfill it, but it's written kind of in the past or perfected tense. In other words, it's, Isaiah's gonna talk about the coming of this Messiah, Meshiach, as if it's already happened. That's what prophecy does, is it takes the promises of God and says they're as good as done. Isaiah 53, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was crushed for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Life purpose. This is what Jesus envisions it means for him to be the Messiah. And so we've got this big gap between Peter's correct answer and what Jesus knows to be true about his role and what being the Christ means. 
That's the tall task that Jesus has before them. Not just getting his disciples to understand who he is, but what it means. And moving on to our next outline point, that's actually what Peter's correct answer unlocks. Peter's correct answer unlocks more. Like I said earlier, I don't find myself being too hard on the disciples because this is an aha moment for them. They know who Jesus is. Because this now unlocks Jesus' teaching at a a new level, a next level. It's kind of like who Jesus is, is Jesus 101. And they've just completed it. They've just come up with the correct answer. And now, taking them beyond Jesus 101, he's diving into Jesus 201. And he's gonna teach them about what that now means. Coming up, In today's passage, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, and then soon chapter 9, verse 31, and chapter 10, verses 33 through 34, Jesus will take his disciples even deeper into what it means for him to be the Messiah, the long-awaited promised one. And he begins course Jesus 201, and if this was a course and it had a syllabus, right at the top, as a summary for this course, it would read something like, the Christ being sacrificed is the beginning of God's great plan for atonement and restoration, and he will rise again. That would be the summary of what Jesus is inviting his disciples into, and it would be that last part The suffering part's hard enough. We're gonna get to that in a second. But it would be that last part that, and he will rise again, that is gonna be confusing for the disciples because they would confuse that with the general resurrection of the body, something that is awaiting all people at the culmination of all things, the second return of Jesus. And amidst all this, here's the craziest thing. This is like Jesus 501 to skip a little bit further What if this man, Jesus, actually has the power, the ability to see all of this through? Man, these are big shoes to feel that the Messiah is gonna be one that brings righteousness to the land in which Judah and Israel will all be saved. And not only that, not only is he gonna be the fulfillment that we've never seen before, Nobody has ever been able to allow the people of God to dwell in righteousness perfectly and completely, but but he will also be one to bear the sins and make others righteous. Jesus 501 is kind of like, what if he can actually run that play? What if he can actually do that? That's for later for them. Here at the start of Jesus 201, the disciples would once again be like sweet Maisie and asking the question, what does Jesus being the Messiah mean? In grace, Jesus doesn't expect more from his disciples or us than we're capable of in the moment. This is why I don't see Jesus ranting against his disciples in this time. They may be exactly where he intends them to be at this point in time. Okay, you've understood who I am. That I'm not just a prophet. That I'm not John the Baptist or Elijah reincarnated. That I am the Christ. 
Now let's take that and let's build on that, what that means. These guys had no context that the Messiah, the Meshiach, would also be the suffering one. Not yet. So that's where he's going to take them into Jesus 201. I know this is, this is a lot for us to take in. What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? What did people back then think it means? And, and kind of wrestling with all that, it's kind of hurting our heads so far. But see, here's the crazy thing. We've got Good Friday. We've got Easter Sunday. We've got 2,000 years of learning under our belts. And it can still be challenging for us to understand what does all this mean? No wonder they didn't get it in the moment. And that right there, Jesus knowing that, that even the correct answer doesn't mean that they're getting it, that's why he does something weird. Maybe you caught it when you heard the verses read during the first worship set. Verse 30, Mark chapter 8, verse 30. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. I've shared before, this is what some people have actually termed the messianic secret. And even though it's usually not smart to disagree with smart people, I actually think that that term's not the best term, messianic secret. I think it's probably more appropriately called the messianic misalignment because Jesus isn't keeping a secret here. He just sees that there is message misalignment with his disciples. Who would they go and say to the crowds that Jesus is? Remember Peter's thought bubbles? If he went and Jesus said, go tell people about me, right there, which might be what we expect when Peter gets the correct answer, right? If Jesus went, great, go and tell everybody, what would the message be? Not the gospel. Jesus is working on message misalignment here. That's why, let's, let's pull up that picture again of the, the zoomed-in conversation. This incongruity, this misalignment here represented on the screens, this is why Jesus strictly charges them, don't tell anybody about this. You're not ready yet. The message you would proclaim is not the gospel. Not yet. And immediately, we're about to see this gap proven. By Peter. <laughs> Dang it. Winning streak at one. <laughs> Verse 31, and he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. <laughs> Big blow up. <laughs> get behind me, Satan. Wouldn't you have loved to hear Peter's actual words? I think Mark is being a little generous to his friend Peter in not telling us that, hey, Peter pulled Jesus aside and said, you're like, ooh, and said what? That's gotta be a juicy conversation. No, but Mark just says he, he just rebuked Jesus. 
And I want to clear up a couple of things here. First, when Jesus rebukes Peter, he is not responding just to Peter. We know that because in the context of turning and seeing all his disciples, then he rebuked Peter. Do you think Peter was the only one that had misaligned thought bubbles in what it meant that Jesus is the Messiah? No, none of these guys got that right. Peter's just the only loudmouth confident enough to say something about it. But when Jesus turns and rebukes Peter, he does it so all of his disciples would have this course correction. So Jesus is responding to all of their misalignment. Secondly, <laughs> Peter was not possessed in this moment. When, when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, it's not that Peter was possessed. What Jesus is responding to in crediting it to Satan is the same nature of the temptation that he has heard before. Matthew chapter four, verses eight through 10 actually gives us more information about when Satan tried to tempt Jesus to just bypass the cross. Just bypass the cross and you will still get all of the kingdoms that you are to inherit as the son of God. Just bypass the cross. You don't need to suffer. And that's unfortunately the same kind of thing that Peter found himself saying to Jesus. When Peter rebuked him, he was rebuking the idea that the son of man must be rejected and be killed. And Peter goes, you don't need that. And Jesus says, that's the same thing I've heard from Satan. It is not the purpose of God. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to get his disciples to understand. What is the purpose of God? So no wonder Jesus discerned that, that these disciples were not yet ready to go out and spread this message. Jesus still held the proverbial message microphone. Let's keep going. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? I think right there he's thinking, he's hearing the tempting words of Satan. Just, just give me your purpose and you get the whole world. For whoever is ashamed of me and my purpose and who I am and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus issues his call to discipleship. Okay, disciples, crowd, you wanna follow me? You wanna be a part of team Messiah, Meshiach, the Christ? Here's the plan. Rome isn't your greatest enemy. 
and you're not going to throw them off with stones and swords. Like we said last week, this isn't going to end like you think it will. Here's the plan. Here it is. Applicable for followers back then and still standing the test of time. You want to be a part of Team Jesus. You want to be a part of the Messiah's reign. Three steps. He outlines them right here. Jesus' call to discipleship. First, accept Jesus as Lord and profess him courageously. Man, church, we have seen, you heard from Chris Bowers earlier, we have seen so many people through vacation Bible school and student ministry camps, and especially this past weekend, fresh in our minds, less than 48 hours ago, 50 to 60 people standing publicly and saying, Jesus is Lord and professing it courageously. That's an essential part, Jesus 101, of what it means to know him as Lord. We're gonna get to this before, but, but it's an essential step, or in a little bit, but it's an essential step to know that and profess that Jesus is Lord first because what follows next is I'm not. That's step number two. Release self-determination and replace it with dependence on the Messiah. I am no longer Lord of my life. Now, I don't know anybody that really calls themselves Lord of their own life. But what that means is if I confess that Jesus is my Lord, it means I'm not. I'm no longer in control. I, I surrender self-determination. I don't get to determine my worldviews anymore, my values. And it's not just I let all that fall and I'm just a blob wandering around. No, I replace it then with a dependence on the Messiah. My worldview, my desire to protect my life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, my, my desire to protect all my belongings and all that is now subject to a new Lord. He gets to tell me who I am, how to see things, and what I value. He is Lord over my finances, my schedule, how I view other people, my words. He's Lord. And then third, follow him in losing your life in order to save it. Now, you and I, because of the country that we live in, because of the history that we have, we are fortunate enough to have freedom and to be able to gather like this and to not on a regular basis consider that I might actually lose my life for this cause. And in fact, that's been a lot of people in the history of the church. So Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 says that let us continually offer to God our lives as a sacrifice. Let us put our lives on the altar and say, God, I'm yours. Who I am, what I have, what I do, it's all yours. So that is one way that you and I can, can lose our life in order to save it. But I wanna pause right here and remind us that it is also possible in our day and age to literally lose our life for Jesus' cause. Do we, do we recognize that there are people throughout our world on our watch that professing Jesus and following him will actually cost them their life? 
It is precious enough to them. It is real enough to them to actually lose their life in order to follow Jesus. I want that to inspire us, church. I want that to make us honor those people. And I want that to make us go, if they would literally lose their life in order for the cause of Christ, why do I still try to say Jesus is Lord and then retain control? Lose your life in order to save it. You know, each of the times that Jesus is going to predict his death, chapter 8, verse 31, chapter 9, verse 31, chapter 10, verses 33 through 34, every time he predicts his death for his disciples, and then immediately after that, he gives a lesson on discipleship. Every time. Correlation meaning following Jesus is like dying. Put that on your next Christian (laughs) t-shirt. Following Jesus is like dying. If you're viewing things from the world or self, you're gonna have to surrender that kind of life, that kind of attempts at control and give it away to the lordship of Jesus. That's what is illustrated in baptism, that people go down underwater. The old me is gone. That's what is illustrated when scripture's talking about we are identifying with Jesus in his death. The old me is not just managed, it's done, it's dead. And then luckily, people don't just stay underwater. Only one person Uh, for about a second and a half during baptisms the other night, stayed underwater, made me a little nervous, but even they came up again. And gloriously, we are not only dying to our old self, we are also raised to walk in a new life. The Messiah lives now through me. And for these men, as a result, as a foretaste, three of them are about to get a foretaste of future glory of this man, the Messiah. They're about to see what it means that Jesus is the Messiah in a big picture way. That's next week, and we get to join with them. Don't miss that. So this week, you and I have tried to tackle Jesus 101, who is Jesus, and Jesus 201. What does it mean that he's the Messiah? I wish I could kind of hand out continuing education credits. There's been a lot. So I wanna summarize this. Understanding who Jesus is and what his purpose is is paramount for the Christian so that he can call us to die to our old way of living and live like he has called us to. Each of these disciples, they, they slowly stumble through understanding what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, but thankfully we see eventually they get it. Eventually, people that we hear from in the rest of our New Testament, they understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And maybe none had their perspective of who Jesus is altered more than Paul. And Paul later wrote this. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. That gap in what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah isn't here any longer. These disciples, and eventually Paul, would come to know what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And it is worth giving your life for, even if dying, because beyond this life, there is a resurrection of the dead. The very worst that this world can threaten us with can't win. That is worth dying towards and or living for as a sacrificial offering to God. So I'm not doing my job here today if it's just my reflections. As the worship team comes up, I want us to take an opportunity and answer the Mark question for yourselves. We're gonna have some space. There's gonna be a question on the screens. What's my answer? To the Mark question. Who is Jesus and what does it mean for him to be the Messiah? Maybe for some of us, it's as I see Jesus as the Messiah, it means I've got to stop living as if I'm actually still Lord of my life. I've got to stop saying Jesus is Lord and then constantly trying to regain control of my life back. Whatever he calls me to, however he calls me to live, sacrificially even, as a servant for others, it's worth it. Maybe for some of us, the answer to the Mark question is, is a first time accepting Jesus as Lord and professing him courageously. We'd love to help you do that. In all honesty, maybe for you, your answer to the Mark question, what does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? Nothing. It's not gonna change my week. If an encounter with Jesus and the Messiah is not gonna change us, maybe just be honest about that reflection. But maybe God is using this day, this encounter with the Messiah, the encounter with Christ, a call to lose that kind of ordinary life and surrender to the best that the kingdom has for us. So I want you to take something. Maybe the connection card is the easiest thing you can write on. Or if you received a bulletin on the way in, go ahead and write on that or grab your phone. It doesn't matter. But I want us to have some space for you to do some soul work at this question. What's my answer to the Mark question? Who is Jesus? And in the words of Sweet Maisie, what is it mean? We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's service. If you're interested in giving, for joining serving opportunities, and much more, visit TimberlineChurch.org connect. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.